1: and you've tuned into this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Our guest this week is Dr. Anna Curry. Dr. Curry leads at ts Commitment to First Responder Health and Wellness. Joining the team in May 2020, Dr. Curry is responsible for creating, developing, and implementing strategies, campaigns, and programs that will advance First Responder Health and Wellness. As part of this effort, Dr. Curry established the FirstNet Health and Wellness Coalition that brought together the C-suite leadership of over 24 national public safety organizations, representing more than 5.1 million first responders to address the most pressing public safety wellness needs. At FirstNet, built with AT&T, Dr. Curry is responsible for the entire responder wellness portfolio. She leads the FirstNet Peer Support Program, FirstNet Health and Wellness Coalition, FirstNet Therapy Dog Program, FirstNet.com Health and Wellness Page, FirstNet App Catalog Wellness and Safety Category, and collaborates with industry leaders to support efforts to bring wellness programs to first responders nationwide. Dr. Anna Curry, welcome to Next Steps Forward.
2: Thank you so much, Chris. It's just delightful to be here. I can't wait for the conversation.
1: That is some portfolio of, I'll say, things that you're responsible for. and We're going to dive into those, but the day is only 24 hours long. How do you find the time to oversee (laughs) and manage all this stuff?
2: Well, I really didn't think much about it until I heard it. Coming from your mouth, I uh, was like, yeah, we built a lot over the last almost three years.
1: Only three years. That is incredible.
2: Yes. It's been an exciting opportunity.
1: And everything starts with FirstNet, so at least you won't forget the name of, of whatever the program is. <laughs> so clearly with all of that in your portfolio, at is doing so much for first responders and you're at the forefront of that effort as you work with so many of your colleagues. We've got a lot to talk about, but I'd like to better introduce you to our audience first, beginning with the start of your career as a clinical nurse in bone marrow transplant and medical and surgical intensive care nursing at Duke University. That's quite a role. Why did you choose that?
2: Thank you so much. And a big shout out to my nursing colleagues across the United States, simply because every day they show up to care for people in their worst days, right? Uh, I love being a nurse. I completely identify as a nurse in all of my roles, which is that art and science of caring for people and populations wherever they are on their health and wellness journey. And um, I was definitely formed by those early experiences both at Duke in bone marrow transplant and then later on at Albemarle um, Community Hospital in medical and surgical ICU in really growing up as a young adult, learning how to deal with complex situations, life and death, chronic illness, um, losing family. And it was definitely made a huge impact on me and you never know what somebody else is experiencing and everybody deserves a little bit of compassion.
1: And that's a word I think more and more folks have been using post-COVID, thankfully. You mentioned life and death, losing family members. You certainly saw many medical successes and even some miracles, but there also must have been a share of heartache. How do medical professionals learn to cope with those losses?
2: Uh, Cope is a... A funny four-letter word, right? And it's it's difficult. I don't know. Some people would say they don't cope, and some people would say that they do. Some people would say that they're resilient or have grit to get through those situations. I think that the more we discern... And really not shy away from those experiences that are difficult and examine them for what they taught in that moment that will help, again, form us throughout the rest of our lives. And certainly there are, were moments, especially in bone marrow transplant, where it could only be described as a miracle, and there were other moments when we lost patients that we thought for sure were on the road to recovery. And yet the way their families circled around them and had so much love in those last moments really imprinted on me what good death could look like. And so, again, traumatic situations have this way as I've said already, forming somebody and really giving them insight into the human experience. And I think that when we're willing to examine those really, really difficult scenes and be honest with ourselves and our colleagues, those are those opportunities for extensive growth and in a positive way, in a positive way.
1: I'm very curious about this next transition here in your career. So you went from being a bone marrow nurse to developing strategic plans for U.S. Army Community Health Coalitions. And that work actually started in Germany, right?
2: Yes, it absolutely did. And um, That was largely thankful or thanks to my husband. He is an active duty Army soldier and right when I thought my critical care career was taking off, uh, if you'd asked 20-year-old Anna what she wanted to be when she was in her 40s, I wanted to be a critical care professor. That's what I envisioned for myself. Well, he picked me up and he moved me over to Germany, and which was fantastic, right? We got to live overseas um, out as a part of the United States Army, but I couldn't get a job as a critical care nurse. And at that time was really the height of the nursing shortage in the early 2000s. And I remember laughing, going, who thought with my background, working at Duke, working at Albemarle, ICU, ER nurse float rotations, and I could not get a job as a nurse overseas. Partially, that was because in the overseas situation, the U.S. Army puts green suitors, you know, people who wear the uniform in those critical care positions. And I was a civilian. I was a military spouse. And I was very lucky, blessed, blessed that this position came open as the health promotion coordinator for the 1st Infantry Division and 98th Area Support Group out of Würzburg, Germany. And they were looking at how do we analyze our community's health and wellness needs? And I had um, just enough experience in health and wellness to understand what they were trying to accomplish. And it identified for me this love of working with diverse organizations that were not necessarily healthcare organizations, but organizations that contributed to the wellness of those communities. And how do we collaborate? How do we work together to achieve achieve health improvement goals? And that's where um, the Community Health Promotion Council process started in Germany, and we were very successful in collaborating and working together. We started looking at things like deployment cycle support for health. This was the first time uh, GWAT was starting up. What do we do with our soldiers And their health coming back from the war? What do we do with the family members who are struggling? What do we do with the kids and the youth task force? And so we stood up several initiatives. The youth task force was one of them. We had a suicide prevention team. Um, We had the walk to Iraq and back program to support the spouses through that year long deployment. And so it really taught me the power of collective good, people working together to achieve improvements in health. And that uh, really cemented a true love for strategic planning with with multidisciplinary organizations.
1: So from the army in Germany, you then decide to dabble in telecommunications
2: an almost 18-year point in that dabbling with the U.S. Army. We had moved back from Germany to the U.S. and U.S. Army Public Health Command had asked me to stay on and help work with other installations trying to do the same kind of work that we did in Germany. So we started out with this little pilot program of four Army installations and it grew to over 50 Army installations worldwide written into Army doctrine. So You know, as that my career progressed, it was learning policy. It was learning evaluation methodologies. There was getting my doctorate in the process of that. There was doing evaluation plans and process improvement plans and really scoping out infrastructure and systems. Because as awesome as health and wellness is, the unsexy side of health and wellness is for it to truly be successful, you have to have infrastructure. You have to have policy and resources to be successful. And so we got to build out for the Army what that look like now, the army is a global, you know, entity. It's not just located in D.C. or in little army installations across the United States. It has geographically dispersed assets, and when you come to a company like FirstNet or AT and it has similar characteristics as being a global entity with a desire to to implement strategies, infrastructure policies that can transform health and wellness. And I think that that skill set that I got from the U.S. Army um, made it very attractive for me to come work for FirstNet.
1: Well, now I have a better understanding of how you're able to manage everything in your current portfolio based on what you did for the Army. (laughs) One question I have for you in terms of what you built with the U.S. Army, you said you started with four installations and then grew to 50? Yes. I know all the branches of service are their own entity. They do their own thing and now, always, they talk to each other. Are there similar programs, or was yours used as suddenly sort of a, a, a beta program, I guess, to transfer to other uh, branches of service?
2: That's a fantastic question. And so the Army, I don't know if I would call it beta testing, and I don't think the Army you know, would necessarily describe it that way. We certainly proofed out, demonstrated the evidence-based success of the Community Health Promotion Council process. And we worked... With the US Air Force, they have a similar program and then they write their own regulations. So all of the sister services are actually very good about learning from each other, looking at the model and the infrastructure and frameworks, and then they tend to tweak it as they should to their mission to their people into the infrastructure of their base is because they're designed very differently. Um, but the minimum standards and frameworks, uh, you can see elements of it across the different services.
1: Congratulations to you and your team. That's terrific. So as I've mentioned a few times, there's a lot of great things to talk about with FirstNet, but with at and Start with an overview, You know, the generic when, where, why, and how it got started.
2: <laughs> when? Probably started before I came on to FirstNet. I, if you think about FirstNet, it is America's broadband network built with and for public safety. It, built, it, it grew, honestly, out of the devastation of 9-11. If you can think back to cellular networks during... at the Pentagon, Flight 93. Fast forward to Katrina and to other scenarios uh, like massive school shootings, where public safety uses the same kind of network as a commercial user, like you or I. So that creates competition on the network, right? So at the same time, EMS, fire, law enforcement, emergency managers, dispatch are trying to connect triage and manage very critical situations, they're having to compete for those same individuals who are trying to just find out if their loved ones are okay. And so an analysis of 9 Congress at, with the post-9-11 commission identified that those communication struggles contib- contributed to number one cause of loss of life during that time and mandated the first responder network authority and charged it with building out FirstNet. Now, FirstNet is a standalone broadband network built with and for public safety. It's called Band 14. And in 2017, AT&T was awarded that contract to build out that network. And what many people don't realize, it's not just a network, right? We have people, there's an ecosystem, there is the network itself, um, with 24-7 end-to-end security and encryption so that those that information can be protected, the data can be protected. There's also an ecosystem of applications that support public safety on their devices, being able to do their jobs. And then the third part of that ecosystem, probably most important, and what many people don't realize, is, a, uh, is an ecosystem of deployables. There's 150 different devices that can be rolled in to the middle of a disaster to ensure communications. And they're delivered, manned, and monitored by former first responders so that they can seamlessly collaborate with public safety in the local communities during a community's worst day. Unfortunately, you know, just this past weekend with Mississippi and the tornadoes, FirstNet was there standing up the communications, so public safety can do the job to restore infrastructure following disaster. Now, that's the network. That's FirstNet. What does that have to do with health and wellness, right? Well, think about that. We had just described disaster operations. And the number one part of disaster operations is human capital, the human component of responding to somebody's worst day. And FirstNet was seeing more and more of the effects of the mental health and wellness on the responders they were supporting. And then... With the individuals on our own team, we're getting embedded with FEMA for body recovery, for disaster recovery efforts. There's things that you end up seeing that you might not expect to see when you work for a telecommunications company. And consequently, FirstNet decided that they wanted to support the health and wellness of first responders as a part of their mission. And in, I want to say, May 2020, I was invited to come over to the team and help build out what does that strategy look like? And from there, we could build out that beautiful portfolio that you described to support first responders in their health and wellness.
1: You know, I'm so glad and honored to have you on the show today because making the general public aware of what's out there from an infrastructure perspective, I think probably 95%, if not more, are unaware. You just think that, okay, you press 911 and somebody picks up and the police or fire come there's obviously a hell of a lot more to it than just pressing three digits. So so thank you for that in-depth overview of it because I actually certainly learned a lot from that. So what are some of the national public safety organizations that FirstNet works with and were they eager to sign up or to take some time to build out that coalition?
0: So coalition
2: building is a very, um, it's a nuanced endeavor. It really is understanding the needs of the Multidisciplinary organizations that are coming behind a significant national problem. So, we have 28 national public safety associations that sit on the First Net Health and Wellness Coalition. I could rattle off all the alphabet soup of acronyms, uh, but just to give you a high level overview of the types of organizations that sit on that coalition. We have the International Association of Chiefs of Police. We have the International Association of Firefighters. We have the Fraternal Order of Police. Um, We have the National Association for Emergency Medical Technicians, the American Nurses Association, the National Association for Emergency Room Physicians. The associations cover, and that's just a few of them, there are many more, and I don't want to do a disservice to the leadership at the table, but we would take up an hour going through all the acronyms that do sit at the table. But what they do is they represent public safety. From the moment that first call is made, when disaster strikes and first responders show up on the scene, the traditional EMS fire police officers, to the point where emergency management is coordinating with a large-scale natural disaster or man-made disaster, to the point where the victims arrive in the emergency room with our emergency frontline healthcare personnel, that is disaster response. Those are the people that FirstNet wants to support. And so when we came together with the coalition, we were looking to how do we collaborate together? How do we have one voice to represent the needs of first responders across the nation, to advocate, to share resources, to identify lessons learned and best practices because all the associations were grappling with health and wellness as an issue. They were at different stages of how they were addressing it and could really teach each other a lot by coming to the table and sharing that. Um, We conducted the first responder needs assessment from January to March of 2021, to really look at what the first responders were also saying about their health and wellness across all those different disciplines. And we landed on seven significant priorities. They were post-traumatic stress, depression and self-harm, physical fitness, stress management, family member leadership engagement, and responder resiliency. And if you did a deep dive into the literature, the scientific literature about public safety, health, and wellness, you're going to see those themes throughout the data that is out there on the problems and stressors that they're facing.
1: So, as you mentioned, the key component of the net commitment was to support the holistic health and wellness of first responders. Correct. Some people might find it surprising because – don't first responders already have to take good care of themselves? Aren't they required to stay in good physical condition?
2: Well, first of all, wellness is not just physical fitness. It is a holistic... Oh, it idea and concept okay so people think of mind body and spiritual health right that's kind of that top level holistic look but it also includes your environment that you live in it includes your financial wellness your sleep wellness your family member relationship your society your infrastructure your job so again looking at this massive holistic look at wellness yes first responders have to be physically fit to do their jobs. And different ones have different emphasis on what that level of physical fitness entails. I mean, as somebody who is a 911 telecommunications provider sits down for a 12-hour shift or more, they are not necessarily a firefighter grabbing a hose or a person or a pack and having to carry 120 pounds worth of equipment. So there's different needs, right, from a physical fitness perspective. There's also an emphasis on physical fitness at the beginning of a career that doesn't necessarily always follow through the remainder of that career life cycle of a first responder and that's something that needs to be addressed and then when we think about mental and spiritual wellness keeping it high level on that mind body spirit those are conversations that have been somewhat taboo there's there is There is inherent in those professions that run towards disaster, whether we're talking veteran, military, first responder, that we are trained to be tough. We are desirous. We want to serve. We want to care. They're called sheepdog professions in in, um, one description of them. People who are protectors. It's very difficult for that personality to admit and speak to the difficulty that a bad call can leave, and so they tend to push it down. Now that's changing. That narrative is changing. But for many, many years, there was a stigma in public safety and the veteran community of even discussing what a bad day really looks like for these professions.
1: And we're touching that a little bit later, but we just mentioned that makes sense. From a, a holistic health and wellness program, will extend beyond the physical well-being. Would you share details on the post-traumatic stress and suicide prevention aspects of the program? You know, how pervasive are post-traumatic stress and suicide among America's first responders?
2: So that's a that's a great question. It's actually much more complex to answer than you would think. We can cite statistics from 6% to 25% of first responders um, may have a diagnosis of PTSD. Roughly 30% experience some sort of mental health. Um, suicide far exceeds de- deaths by suicide and public safety far exceed that of a line of duty death right but those statistics can also be a little bit misleading so we need to handle them with care they're very informative so we have a sense of what we're dealing with but when we see that broad range of PTSD of suicide rates of anxiety and depression we do know that there are issues but the the systems for which we can track them by public safety vary by profession and so there's a great deal of variability in the data and the strength of that data to be be very um To generalize it. Right. So those are those are very scientific terms is how you look at that from an academic perspective. We know that there are issues, but there needs to be improved surveillance into the data so that we feel more confident and that we're also feel more confident in in the resources and programming are making inroads into those improved surveillance systems. Because one of the first thing that happens when you increase awareness about a problem is tracking improves and that creates a shift, right? So we see more of a problem. And all of a sudden, even though we've got efforts to address it, there's this human desire to go, well, it's not working. So let's change real quick without actually letting our data systems catch up to where we are and analyzing the intervention with the specific population that we're addressing, and then really chipping at it with um, multi again, it's chipping away at the issue using many different tools, right? It's not a one size fits all because these are complicated diagnoses and topics that we're dealing
1: with. I think I may have mentioned to you when we first spoke a few weeks ago that I'm getting my doctorate degree and I'm working on my dissertation focused on first responders and specifically police and PTSD. So you're making my head spin with all this data you're talking about, but if you don't mind, I might reach out and and get some of those white papers you're referencing or use some of the (laughs) first net data. So there's also the leaders engagement component. How does leadership engagement help first responders health and wellness?
2: So I love talking about this. Um, This was not, this is an area of wellness that I knew from my experience with the Army that was critical to shifting health and wellness. What was unexpected for me was when we conducted the first responder needs assessment with the FirstNet Health and Wellness Coalition, the number one thing that the first responders themselves said to engage in health and wellness, we wanted to see our leaders involved. And I what i was i was so excited i mean that was that was huge that they said this because what we see when leaders engage is that their subordinates are more likely to mirror the behaviors that they see in their leadership so the leaders themselves can't just talk about health and wellness they have to engage at it in a place where their subordinates see that this is important. They are the ones who will lead the shift to the well community that we want to see amongst public safety in the future. Um, so, So that leadership engagement, I think leaders take for granted sometimes the true impact that they leave they're not just living leaving a palm print they're leaving fingerprints all over the individuals who will then come after them and so it's it's exciting to me that the leaders are paying attention to the responders saying this and the responders are saying to their leaders we want you to talk we want you we don't want you to just talk follow your talk with action and the most important way to get people to follow Lead is with action.
1: Simple concept, right? Yes. Another part of that effort is to establish standards for first responder health and wellness. Is it a case that there are no standards in some places or do almost all first responder agencies need better standards?
2: So that's a great question in the sense that standards are out there. If you, you know this from your academic background, if you dive into the literature, there's evidence on what the standards for a good wellness program are, whether we're talking mental wellness, physical wellness, spiritual wellness. What's happening in public safety is depending upon the level of education and experience of the individual who's been tapped with building out the wellness program, that person may or may not know that they can go to the literature and find that information out. And then it's not standardized across all of public safety. It's specific to that one agency. What we also know in public safety is that communities resource them differently. What the the assets and resources of the FDNY or NYPD or LAPD are very different from the resource of a small of a small sheriff's department in Laramie, Wyoming. So there's disparity between rural and urban and tribal needs when it comes to their health and wellness and their standards. So what we've been talking about and working with um, through the coalition and several different consortiums that I also sit on is what do the associate, what is the role of the associations in identifying what the minimum based standards are? Because then the agencies, they can publish them for small, mid, large size agencies, will have a resource to go to from their national public safety association And work with them as the technical experts on implementation to get things right. Because the first thing a public safety organization or agency gets when they want to implement wellness is they're bombarded by information. And with, you know, it goes back to that double-edged sword as we raise awareness about a problem, more and more programs are cropping up to support the health and wellness of first responders, and they're not all made equal. So we want to publish standards so that agencies can also identify what is an evidence-based program and how is it gonna help me meet the needs of my people where we're at today.
1: Coalition works to integrate wellness training and principles into the education of first responders. You mentioned this both in your role with the Army and as at AT&T in terms of public policy, how do you go about changing public policy at the local and state levels? And can you share a few examples of the successes that effort has created?
2: Oh, that's a complicated question. You got me on that one. So policy takes working together, right? It takes getting the associations that represent a constituency to understand a problem and work with their local state and national representatives to drive change, whether that's through resourcing or grants or awareness, or again, publishing those standards and putting um, pen to paper to support responder wellness. We've been seeing more and more of that lately. So the COPS Act has recently been published in order to allocate resources and grants because they recognize that the healthy and well public safety official or that that law enforcement officer is better able to do the jobs that their communities need them to do. And so that grant process fills a gap for those agencies to get funding to implement change within the local level. However, what is needed, and I'm going to do a little bit of a clarion call to every single community in, in the United States, is our communities are only as healthy and well as their public safety infrastructure. They need to allocate resources to those agencies that are for health and wellness because the healthier and well dispatch, EMS, fire, or law enforcement, emergent, or emergency managers, and frontline healthcare workers are the healthier their communities are going to be. It is a win-win to support public safety wellness. And honestly, I, we, we owe then to support them so that they don't have a diminished life, that they see the opportunity for growth and service and honor and purpose in what they do. Because so many times those individuals are the ones that are showing up on somebody's worst day and they make a difference.
1: You know, you actually almost said verbatim a quote I read recently in a paper that, and I'll just say generically, first responders, everybody has a bad day but first responders see everybody's bad day every day. Exactly. You just hit the nail on the head on that one. So as someone who works in the mental wellness nonprofit arena, I've been so happy to first and finally see a greater public recognition and understanding of post-traumatic stress and then serious discussions about how to help veterans, first responders and others who are experiencing that post-traumatic stress. FirstNet is working now to transcend that discussion and begin to focus on post-traumatic growth. What is post-traumatic growth and why is it important that we move that discussion to the next level.
2: Oh, I'm so glad you brought this one up. I'm going to get really excited talking about post-traumatic growth because what happens when we discuss just PTSD? Um, we hear diminishment. We hear labels. We hear that you're injured and broken, and that that is not the entire narrative when it taught, when we talk about experiencing traumatic events. There is, and it's been demonstrated through the research of Dr. Tedeschi and Dr. Moore that people can actually grow from traumatic events. Uh, when we're looking at Holocaust survivors or individuals that Hanoi Hilton from Vietnam um, to the experiences of different veterans, When there is a a, a clear sense of connection and opportunity to explore those experiences, the opportunity for growth can occur even if it's somebody's worst experience. There's five domains of post-traumatic growth, and there are things like existential growth, that spiritual component, that development, there's a deeper sense of connection, new relationships, new possibilities, and a sense of purpose in the work that those individuals do. And when we see those things grow and help train people and teach people about the capacity to to grow, then they know they have an That There is another road to follow in their career as a first responder, not just one, of diminishment. There's nothing more sad to me that these incredible individuals who raise their hand for a life of service think that the sum total of that service to their communities is one of diminishment, disease, disorder. And it doesn't have to be that way. Through our work with Boulder Crest Institute for Post-Traumatic Growth, we've been able to implement organizational shifts that help these public safety officials see the capacity for growth, even in the most awful days that occur in the communities that they serve. So I think that you have to give people hope when we're talking about traumatic incidents we have to give people hope that they have the self-agency and the self-advocacy and the self-capability to grapple with these very, very complex situations and complex days that they're dealing with. Because without hope, that's what, that's what happens when there's, when it appears to be no other choice in life. That's when suicide happens. And if we're going to really get upstream for suicide. There's many things that we need to address within public safety, but one of those things we definitely need to talk about is the capability for post-traumatic growth to still lead a good life, even in the middle of the bad.
1: I've heard the passion in your voice about the work that you do, our entire conversation. But when you start talking about post-traumatic growth, you you kicked it up a notch or two. (laughs) It's
2: Let's just say we'll just say that without getting uh, too personal. Is I personally have experienced post-traumatic growth. I have um, between professional and personal uh, experiences have experienced trauma in my life, and through it, it, through the teachings of Dr. Tedeschi and more through personal self-reflection, through the support structures that I had, I got to experience it myself. And that is the hope I would have for every first responder out there.
1: Awesome. What types of interventions promote post-traumatic growth?
2: Uh, So that's a good question. And what we're seeing, so there's lots of literature that supports peer support programs as an evidence-based intervention for public safety. And it's something that I think is very appealing to public safety. They tend to be a not very trusting profession. And so they want to connect with people inside their sphere, inside their profession. And so peer support has been demonstrated to help people grapple with the moral um the moral injuries that occur as a result of of taking care of people on their worst day and, and running towards disaster. It helps them process the traumatic event that they may have been experiencing. And it also helps them talk with peers about that balance between Family, relationship, substance use, um, the sort of contributing factors that make a traumatic profession that much more difficult, right? So it's never just the the accumulation of traumatic incidents, although that is a part of it. It builds up over time, but it's also the compounding stressors of financial difficulties, relationship issues, sick children, sick, sick parents, those sort of stressors, Coupled creates this this perfect storm, quite honestly, for many first responders. What the Boulder Crest um, program called Struggle Well does for peer support is it integrates the tenets of post-traumatic growth into the peer support program. So it infuses the organizations that are utilizing this program into one where they start to see each other as each other's caregiver. They also start to see compassion for each other and consequently more and more compassion for the communities that they serve. There is some work um, by Drs. Treziak and Mazzarelli. They wrote the book *Compassionomics* and *Wonder Drug*, that speak to the more we can lean into compassion in public safety and healthcare, the better off we are as individual individuals, and the better decisions we also make in our technical application of our jobs. And I think that. That is one of the things that the Boulder Crest program does very well to promote post-traumatic growth, that sense of compassion and care, and it creates this beautiful ripple effect, not just from the individual level, but through the organization and community.
1: Before we start the show today, you told me I had a pretty aggressive agenda for a conversation, and as always, you were right. I just got (laughs) to the first half of our conversation, and we skipped the commercial break, and we're already 10 minutes past that. Let's talk about peer support. How is FirstNet improving peer support for first responders?
2: Well, I think so. There's two things that are probably not evident from when you discuss the portfolio of the FirstNet Health and Wellness Program. As I mentioned, from a first responder external to FirstNet view, the programs and nonprofits that we sponsor are supporting the developments of those peer support programs so that they have the knowledge, skills, and abilities of how to support their colleagues following disaster and in the middle of life's daily struggle. The other part of that portfolio is what we stood up to to do for our own employees, and that is the FirstNet Peer Support Program. We recognize that as we were sending more and more of our employees out to disaster, that they were seeing and experiencing the same things that our first responder customers were, and... We believe in walking the walk, that we're talking the talk with public safety. And so we stood up our peer support program this year. They um, are certified individuals who've gone through QPR, suicide prevention, uh, empathic listening training. They use the seven C's, which please don't ask me to name all those seven C's (laughs) right now live on the air. I won't be able to cover them all. But these are the tools that are utilized in peer support and critical incident response work. And we are recognizing that we want to be proactive, getting upstream um, from the problems that are inherent in this kind of work. And just ensure that our employees are supported, that they have the resources they need, that they're tied back to our EAP program and the resources that AT&T provides us as a part of being um, an AT&T employee. We have just triggered uh, that peer support team in response to the Mississippi tornadoes this past weekend. And so they're busy supporting our employees, just reaching out. I call it good human training, if you will, reaching out and saying, hey, how are you? What was that like? What can we do to support you? Can I call you back in 30 days just to see how you are? Is something stuck in your mind and you're ruminating on it that you wanna talk about? And we have been um, slowly implementing this over the last six months, getting the infrastructure, the policy in place to be successful. And I'm heartened every single day by this team um, that has come to work with me. There's 11 of them. They volunteer their time. And they're incredible individual individuals who are really committed to a better world, a better organization for at t And consequently, that's going to bleed out into public safety so that we can support them better as well.
1: You announced the ROG the Dog, that's R-O-G the Dog, Animal Assisted Therapy Program about two years ago to support public safety on the front lines. How does that program work?
2: Oh, probably the most famous part of my portfolio, quite honestly. So ROG, he is affectionately named for our response operations group. That is the ROG team that deploys out with public safety for FirstNet. And ROG the dog was implemented as a collaboration with Global Medical Response. Um, Global Medical Response did up a therapy dog program in 2014. They started with two dogs. Uh, they are doodle breeds uh, because of their hypoallergenic properties and grew from two dogs to 35 different therapy dogs nationwide, and they were an ideal partner for FirstNet because they were also a global organization that were very comfortable responding at at a minute's notice when disaster strikes, and through our collaboration with Global Medical Response, we're able to call on those therapy dogs and handlers who were specially trained, critical incident response, peer support, suicide prevention. The dogs also go through a rigorous 18-month training program to get certified um, through AKC Good Dog Training and then Therapy Dog Training certifications so that when our customers have experienced a critical incident, again, thinking back to that concept of no matter how big or small an agency is, they can experience trauma, and we want to help fill the gap where they may not have those resources, and so they can call us, and we will deploy a therapy dog to them following an incident. Again, not to bring up Mississippi throughout the conversation, it just is top of mind right now since we've been actively involved in those operations. But we we sent out Rog the Dog to Mississippi today in support of those first responders um, who are caring for their communities.
1: We couldn't talk about at and and not talk about technology and apps. You have a mental health app catalog how does that work?
2: So let's 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 back this up a second. Um, I'm assuming you have a phone with you within reach of wherever you are right now. I can to show you mine, right? it's it's to my right on my desk. That is pretty much every single adult in the United States, and our first responders are no different, they utilize their devices to do their job. Part of the app ca- catalog, is identifying those applications that make it easier for them to do their jobs and what I said to FirstNet when we stood up the program was first responders don't work a nine-to-five job they work Shift work. They work swing shifts. They work through the night. Sometimes it's not even a 12 to 12. Sometimes it's a 10. Sometimes it's a 48. Sometimes it's a 36. It's all over the place. But they have their devices. And when they have breaks, there's always opportunities to enter into mindfulness, to studying about wellness, to taking stress management tests, to identifying where in their resilience that they need to work. And so we wanted to identify evidence-based solutions that were specific for public safety in those categories and those priorities that I mentioned earlier in the discussion that support post-traumatic stress, suicide prevention, stress management, physical fitness. And so those applications go through a rigorous analysis Um, from the FirstNet side of the house. On the technology side of the house, they have to meet the security requirements of the network to become FirstNet verified. On my side of the house, they are analyzed to ensure that what they have, their content is evidence-based. Is it actually delivering solutions that meet some sort of standard for the health and wellness needs of public safety? Um, I had a doctoral student work on that. He used a tool called the ACART, which is an analysis of the evidence-based of mHealth applications. And so we could say and and share these applications with a level of confidence that they can help public safety in addressing their health and wellness wherever they live, work, or play, because they'll have their devices with them.
1: My listeners know that I'm a huge Apple junkie, and in particular, my Apple Watch, and I see you and I have the same one. Yes. You know, And, and talking about these apps, are they wearable? Is it something that, you know, like I get reminded to breathe or you know, in terms of the wellness things from my Apple Watch, are there similar functionalities like that with the, the FirstNet apps?
2: So there's a, a variety of different functionalities of all the different apps in the applications. So several of them deal with um, ensuring the peer support team and health and wellness resources for mental crises are on the device so a responder can immediately get the help that they need when they need it, right? Um, There's another application that addresses the physical health and wellness with the O2X human performance app. So it has training programs to help those first responders meet their physical fitness requirements. Um, There's ones that address mental health and wellness. One that has a suicide prevention plan if a first responder is struggling and uh, those are different solutions that help them. I there are applications out there that are using data from wearables to help inform first responders, but they're in the in their process of being built out from a proof of concept perspective.
1: So, as a parent, I know it's always risky to ask another parent which one is your favorite child. I'm going to do it anyway. Which program in the first umbrella? is your favorite and why, you know, and for me personally, I mentioned, you know, I'm an Apple junkie. So I love that, but also as a dog lover, I'm torn between your app catalog and the the dog program. What's yours?
2: Yeah. So just like any good parent should say is I don't have a favorite. And it actually, in this case, it is, it is true. What Most people don't realize about the portfolio of applications and solutions and programs and nonprofits that we support that we have supported financially uh, with resources and sponsorship. Is those programs were chosen to meet the needs of public safety and first responders. We wanted to put the power in first responder and public safety's hands to to make the decision that met the needs of their community, their population. One of the best things that any agency can do is assess their own people and identify what they need in their local environment. Because if you think about it, the needs of NYPD are very different from Kansas or from Illinois or from Colorado or Florida and so you have to understand the unique geographic requirements of that public safety agency and consequently those programs that we support all meet different needs of public safety where where they're at and so it's not a one size all fit solution and therefore there's not they all do incredible work, and I am honored and blessed every single day that they work with me to support the needs of public safety.
1: I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to steer away from your work with at for a moment or two, if that's okay. Absolutely. You're also a best-selling author of a series of books. What was the spark of inspiration for the Christ Walk series?
2: So before I began working with um, AT&T, I also did a lot of work with faith-based organizations for how do you integrate health and wellness into the spiritual discussion because remember it's not just physical health it's not just mental health there's also a spiritual component to the well individual. I do need to make the caveat that spirituality is defined by the individual so I'm not espousing any one specific religion or or uh, practice when it comes to spirituality. But if you think about the concept that health and wellness can be woven throughout all spe- aspects of life, whether you're a Fortune 10 company like AT&T or you're a public safety organization or you're a faith-based or- organization or a school, or you're dealing with product, strategy, marketing, messaging, External affairs, legislative, health and wellness is a part of every single one of those entities. And the Christ Walk series book is about taking that walk, about what does it mean to have health and wellness as a part of your spiritual practice.
1: We have just a few minutes left. What inspires you most about America's first responders as you work for and with them and your at and colleagues?
2: They show up every day. They show up every day. How many days have you wanted to just roll over and go back to bed? How many days have you wanted to say no to take care, uh, go to a baseball game with your son or to dance recital with your daughter or date with your wife or your husband? First responders show up every day in spite of all that, sometimes with great personal sacrifice to their families, and they do it out of a desire to serve and to lead their communities a better place. And I think that we as community members need to recognize that and support them every day in the work that they do.
1: I've said it better myself. Dr. Anna Curry, it was an absolute honor and privilege to have you here today, and thank you so much for the work that you do.
2: I appreciate it, Chris. It's been a delightful conversation.
1: And again, I want to reiterate, you were right as always. We got there by 80% of the content, so that means you have to come back as long as your team lets, lets me bring you back. Absolutely. And thank you to our audience for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details on upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Figure and on Twitter at chrismeek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy